Hey guys, it's time for another episode of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And today I'm going to welcome back to these airwaves the evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook. She was last heard on this show talking about parasites. That's the subject of her book, Our Parasites Ourselves. And uh, it was a very interesting conversation because uh, parasites are certainly one of the coolest subjects in all of biology. And Marlene is one of those scientists who are also great storytellers and explainers. And uh, if you missed that show, you can look on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll post a link. Well, Marlene has a new book out about another set of cool subjects. It's called Sex on Six Legs, Lessons on Life, Love, and Language from the Insect World. And it's full of interesting discoveries about insects, their behavior, their interrelationships, their sex lives and social lives. But beyond that, it's about how those findings do or don't apply to us people. The book raises a lot of questions about how scientists and non-scientists alike generalize, for better or worse, from animals to humans. We do that, don't we? And that's much of what Marlene and I talked about in our conversation. So listen in and enjoy. Well, Marlene, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. I want to go back in your natural history uh, this time around. Tell me when you became an insectophile. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, which, of course, is a city, um, and I was interested in animals like a lot of kids are, but, of course, in Los Angeles, there are not, you know, moose in your backyard or, um, you know, eagles that you can watch with binoculars or anything like that, and anyway, I didn't have any binoculars, and so I think turning to the insects in my backyard was a natural thing to do, and I took caterpillars inside and fed them whatever plant they were on and watched them hatch into butterflies, and I, you know picked up stones and looked at ants and stuff like that. So I think it was just a natural outgrowth of being a kid interested in animals, and those were the only animals that were around. How old were you? This sounds really corny, but one of my earliest memories really is of being in the backyard with my mom who was hanging up laundry outside. We didn't have a dryer. And um, I was reaching out for a caterpillar on a leaf, and I remember that I knew what to do with it. It was around kindergarten age. So, again, I think kids just like animals, and I liked caterpillars, and I like bugs. But, you know, of, of all the kids who collect bugs or put bugs in jars, uh, I'm guessing that far less than 1% end up pursuing that all the way through a Ph.D. and a career as a scientist. Um, what was it about you that kept you focused that way? I, you know, lack of maturation? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, you, know <laughs> you know, it was just, I, I, I think that the question is much more, gee, it seems so odd to me that all these people who started out interested in all this cool stuff when they were children abandoned it and became like car salesmen, and I mean, not to disc car salesmen, you know, we need them, but, but you know, they, they started doing all this stuff that to me seems not nearly as interesting. So I, I always feel like the shoe is really on the other foot. Why, why didn't they? Well, that is a big question <laughs> as to why this curiosity and energy that essentially all kids are endowed with um, seems to go away or, or get squashed at some point. Yeah, I mean, keep, keeping, keeping that curiosity seems much more natural to me than losing it. Well, you know, I've talked to cognitive scientists who study child development, and they say that children, um, I'm thinking particularly of Alison Gopnik, children are like small scientists. that They have a lot of the same faculties that actually, when they develop, become really, really good tools for science. Absolutely, and there's this sense of, you know, what is that and how does it work? And that's pretty much what we do as scientists is ask what is that and how does it work? So tell me what sort of kid-like... Qualities survive in in your work today. I, I think part of it is. 
sort of a fascination with and a lack of um, squeamishness about things that other people find icky. Um, so that's certainly part of it and has to do with also my fascination with parasites. Yeah, so you're perfectly happy, say, dissecting a cricket uh, filled with disgusting parasitic worms that are eating the poor cricket from inside out, right? Well, they're fly larvae, actually, so maggots is a better term than worms. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, just to be correct, uh, maggots are, you know. Yeah, I think it sounds better anyway. So you're perfectly happy uh, working with maggots. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think, and, and I probably literally dissected, you know, certainly hundreds, possibly thousands of crickets, and every time I find a parasite in one, there's just this little thrill of, oh, my God, look at that, and it's just incredible. I love looking at insects under the microscope. Um, every time you do, you just marvel at how incredible it is that there's all these little tiny parts that fit together and do all these complicated things. The last time we talked, we, we got a little bit into the work you were doing with um, this parasitic fly and the poor crickets that it parasitizes. Uh, but I wanted to hear more because you were in Hawaii at that time studying this situation, which involved a fly that had developed the ability to sort of home in on the crickets, the male crickets, mating chirp, so that when the poor guy tried to serenade a lover, instead uh, what happened is a fly would lay its eggs in him, and eventually these maggots would grow inside him, and he would suffer this horrible death, uh, dying for love, I guess. Um, and you were, you were looking at this sort of back and forth between the crickets who in order to save their lives, might go silent for a while, but then had to, to pipe up in order to attract a mate. And so there was this sort of pendulum swing going back and forth. Yeah, absolutely, and that's still what we're working on. And uh, there's been a really, really cool development lately, which is that instead of an individual cricket going back and forth between calling or not calling, we've now had an example of incredibly rapid evolution in Hawaii where two different populations on two different islands um, now exhibit this wing mutation that has spread incredibly quickly that makes the males completely unable to call. So it's not that they could if they, you know, desired to, but they don't, they, they refrain. It's that they can't. And so that completely protects them from this parasite, but then poses this incredible conundrum about, well, then how do you find a mate? And so a lot of what's interested me about that cricket system is this idea of conflicting selection pressure. So on the one hand, sexual selection is saying, call more, you'll get more mates. On the other hand, naturalist selection is saying, call less, you will be protected by, from this deadly parasite. Well, you know, I'm tempted to take the dilemma that these male crickets face and extend it to certain analogies in human males and their dating strategies. You know, like, do I make a lot of noise and, and show off to attract females and make a fool of myself, or do I stay quiet and, and uh, let them come to me? But that's, you know, that's got its downside. Now, well, yeah, and, and the, the bottom line I must, <laughs> I must point out um, is that the females really do prefer the males that produce the call, but they will also mate with the males that don't, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. And so we're also interested in how, basically, how changes in behavior then influence the rate of evolution. So it, it's turned out to be what seemed like an incredibly esoteric system with this parasite, the, the fly, and, you know, which has been introduced, and the cricket's been introduced to Hawaii, and it's only in a few places, and so forth, that actually turns out to be a great way to answer some really big questions about how fast does evolution happen, and what makes it happen fast and slow. So what sort of answers are you coming up with? I think that behavior is really important. I mean, I, I study animal behavior. This is, you know, what I do, and so obviously I'm biased. But 
I think that behavior is going to turn out to be really important in regulating the rate of evolution, at least of some kinds of traits, particularly traits that are used in displays or that are used in communication. And a lot of times when people talk about rapid evolution, they talk about, say, insecticide resistance um, evolving in some pest where you've been spraying uh, you know, a chemical on a field, and then, of course, a few of the individuals are resistant to the chemical, and they end up... Um, surviving and reproducing, and then pretty soon the whole population is resistant to the chemical, and so there you go, you can't use it anymore. Um, and so this is a, a huge problem for practical reasons, but it's also of great interest to evolutionary biologists, is, you know, well, which traits are going to evolve quickly, how quickly do they evolve, and so forth. Well, I think behavior is important because, well, pesticide resistance is one thing because nobody else needs to get involved in that. But what about the rapid evolution of a cricket song? or, um, say, a uh, bright color on a bird that's used in mating. In that case, you can change the color, but unless the behaviors that surround it, so to speak, the response of another individual, the, um, this, the you know, kind of dance you might make when you have the color and so forth, unless those also can support it, then the trait's not going to be able to change very rapidly. And yet we do see rapid changes in some sexual traits. And anyway, so, so that's a lot of what, what we're pursuing now is how important is behavior in how fast evolution happens. You know, again, you're reminding me of our last conversation, which was all about parasites and the fact that the sort of uh, arms race between parasites and hosts, uh, one species figuring out new ways to infect the other and the other species figuring out new ways to protect itself, uh, drives real rapid evolution, and so parasitism might be responsible for a lot of uh, evolutionary innovation. And now you're saying behavior, too, is that way. These, this is something that can uh, put a lot of pressure uh, on a species to change rapidly and because behavior can change rapidly. Or alternatively, if there's a whole bunch of complicated behaviors surrounding uh, a, a morphology like a, how long your tail is or how loud your song is or something like that, then it can actually hinder the rate of evolution. So maybe it would be advantageous to lose your call, but if then it ah, means yes. you can't find a mate, obviously that's not going to go anywhere evolutionarily. So, so there's, this, there's this interplay where evolution can sometimes be facilitated, as it were, and sometimes hampered by behavior that exists around whatever trait you're talking about. But it's a powerful force. I mean, behavior between species and be behavior yeah. among members of the same species. And wasn't, I mean, wasn't Darwin, as he was so often, uh, ahead of the game on this with sexual selection and things like that? Yeah, and he was very interested in the degree to which um, both male and female behaviors interacted uh, to produce all these traits that you see. And in particular, he had this idea that um, is uh, pretty widely accepted now, that there are traits that exist and have evolved solely because females prefer particular manifestations of them, which obviously is a, is a form of behavior. And that was something that was really shocking to his contemporaries, all of whom thought, first of all, that females of you know any species were probably not going to have that ability to be so discerning, and second, that it certainly couldn't you know exert that much power. But he's, there's a great uh, quote in um, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex uh, by Darwin that where he says that you know we shall 
further see, and it could never have been imagined, that the power to charm the female um, can actually be, and now I, I don't remember the rest of the quote, but the power <laughs> to charm the female can actually be you know, more important than the power to defeat other males in battle, or, or words to that effect. Yeah, so um, the simplistic idea of Darwinism as being all about the uh, survival of the fittest and, and the bloody struggle against enemies and the hostile environment, you know, really doesn't... Um, Really doesn't do justice to the subtlety of uh, of his of his theories. Well, the the whole nature red and tooth and claw, and also the survival of the fittest, it was all stuff that people said, you know, after Darwin. Yeah, neo Darwinians. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people do have this idea that oh, uh, you know, any time you demonstrate that there's competition, that just means there must only be competition, and that competition must be the only force that is important, and that isn't true. And Darwin didn't say it was true, and we all know it's not true either. You know, um, back when I was making my silly analogy between the cricket-fly relationship and uh, human-male dating strategies, I was really just offering you a straw man to uh, to shoot down, and that is the um, temptation to reach from sort of insect stories to human stories, which a lot of people fall prey to. Yeah, one of the reasons that I wrote my book about insects was that I'm so interested in how insects demonstrate what superficially look like human behaviors. They look incredibly complicated. They look like, you know, people dating. They look like um, politics. They look like things that go on in a bar, in your workplace, in, you know, your home. And yet, insects do all of these complicated things with these little tiny brains that are clearly not capable of having the same cognitive processes that human brains do. And so it really forces you to ask yourself some interesting questions about, well, for one thing, what are our huge brains for if you don't need a big brain to do something that's that complicated? Um, and I mean that only, you know, somewhat <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. Uh, you know, but also to ask, all right, so what does it take to make a complicated decision, for example? So, so it's, it's, a really, it's a really cool way to me of looking at the world rather than just saying, oh, look, insects are like little tiny people, because it's really clear they're not little tiny people. They don't have any of the, the same attributes that people do. So, so you get out of that way. I think people looking at primates, for instance, or um, a lot of the social carnivores, it's just really tempting to figure that they're kind of blurry visions of ourselves because they have so much of the same structure that we do. But with insects, you just can't do that. And yet they do stuff that, as you say, superficially resembles things we do, things that most people wouldn't even attribute to insects, and, and you list some of them in your book. Um, the mommy earwig taking really good care of her eggs, right? Or uh, ants teaching each other stuff. Or, or being able to recognize individual faces, which no one would ever think insects could do, um, and respond differently to different individuals or to make huge decisions about what to do as a group. Um, you know, I mean, imagine standing around on a street corner with three or four people and you want to decide where you're going to go for dinner. It would take you, you know, it could take you half an hour. Um, groups of honeybees can make a decision about where to move a nest um, all together and move as a unit um, by communicating with each other within a group. And it's just, it's awe-inspiring. Um, when you say in recognize individual faces, not only the faces of their fellow insects, but in some cases, bees can recognize human faces. Yeah, this this is sort of, it's sort of a gimmick in a way because, of course, <laughs> they're not recognizing you in the sense of 
like, oh, yes, and an individual bee will be friends with, like, one person and not friends with somebody else. Um, but that insects are so good at discriminating objects in their environment, someone thought, okay, well, can they, therefore, discriminate objects in their environment in the way of facial features? And it turns out you can train bees to recognize individual, you know, photographs of individual humans, and they recognize the arrangement of the features. And what it is, so it's, it's not a, it doesn't function, you know, like, like bees did not evolve to look at human faces and tell the difference between people. It's more that the ability to see subtle differences in parts of your landscape is really valuable if you're a bee, and you have to fly miles and miles and miles to find a nectar source and get back to your hive. You have to look for a new uh, nest site and so forth. So that ability, sure, it applies to recognizing human faces. But the amazing thing is humans have always thought that something that subtle had to require tremendous cognitive ability. Okay, if it doesn't, I don't know, could we design a computer to do it? You know, would, would this be something, you know, people are talking about being able to use this in a way to design facial recognition, you know, software that you could use at airports or something. You know, uh, humans uh, feel under assault these days from artificial intelligence with things like uh, IBM's Watson, you know, beating Jeopardy chance. Yeah, yeah. And now you're helping us feel uh, less superior to insects as well. I mean, we're getting it from both sides now. Well, which is a good thing, I think. <laughs> I, I think humans really spend way too much time trying to make this list of, like, things we do that other animals don't. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think the only thing you can conclude from that is humans seem to be the only animals that like to make lists about things that we can do that other animals can't. But the lists themselves, you know, almost any time you look at them closely, they break down unless you start defining the term so narrowly that it's kind of pointless. So, you know, it used to be that humans were the only animals that used tools, and they were the only animals that would make tools. Now that, you know, that's not true either, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that the the real point is humans should stop being the only animal that makes these lists. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fact that we're always talking about what it means to be human and how insecure our place in the universe is, I, that is truly uh, a unique human characteristic, I think. Uh, support, uh, although, you know, like never say never. I mean, who knows what dolphins are talking about, you know. But, I mean, it's possible that they're, they're, they're worried about it, too. But, you know, we just don't have any evidence to the contrary. How big is an insect brain? Um, it varies depending on the insect, but usually you're talking about something that, that strictly speaking, um, you know, can't necessarily be called a brain per se. So they'll have some collections of neurons in the head region, but then they'll have other collections of neurons other places. Um, but generally speaking, you're talking about something that's, you know, really, really tiny. It's not like, um, for example, it's not like... Uh, an insect that looks like it has a big head uh, necessarily has this ginormous brain or is going to be smarter than an you know, insect like an ant, which doesn't seem to have a great big head or something Well, well like just that. for purposes of comparison, if I'm right, and I'm correct me quickly if I'm wrong, Marlene, but don't we have like 100 billion neurons in our brain? Uh, asking the wrong person, do not know. <laughs> I, think, I think it's on the order of 100 billion. Sure. And then, and then I, 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 so so I'm, I'm incapable of correcting you on that one. I'm not a neuro person. Um, I'll tell you what. I'll add a, a postscript to this uh, interview that corrects my number if it's wrong. Sure. And, and, and uh, on top of that, I know this for a fact, that we have trillions of interconnections among those billions of neurons. Now, how many neurons, roughly, would a, would a typical insect have? Uh, again, asking the wrong person. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm not even going to venture a guess within an order of magnitude because I, I could well be wrong, and that's just the sort of thing people always like, you know, to being catch all you. whatever it's about. Gotcha, um, journalism. So yeah, I can't, can't yeah. remember, but I mean, <laughs> you know, we're definitely talking, you know, many orders of magnitude fewer 
Um, and, you know, when you look inside an insect, I mean, you're talking about things that are a very tiny proportion of, of their body. But, again, I think what, what the small size of insect nervous systems tells you is that you can't just always make this literal translation from either more is better, more is more complicated, or that brain size, you know, dictates a lot of stuff about behavior. I mean, it does obviously say some things, and our brains are fascinating, and it's really good to understand how they do translate to our behavior, but the way humans do it is not the way other animals do it, and that's to me, is the, the take-home part of the story. Well, you know, I've, I've been thinking of another way of looking at it, and that is that while humans have a lot of neurons in their one brain, our one brain, uh, a bee colony, let's say, has a lot of little processing units working in parallel, and uh, what emerges out of that interaction could be considered a kind of intelligence, a kind of collective intelligence that does very well for itself and maybe could be compared to uh, the results of, of human activity. Lots of people, um, ever since people started studying social insects, um, lots of people have suggested that they represent kind of a super organism of some kind, and Bert Holdobler and um, uh, E.O. Wilson have uh, published a book a, a year or two ago about exactly that, that you can look at um, insect colonies as a super organism. And I think, uh, you know, it, it works to some extent, um, the degree to which there are emergent properties so that it's not just an analogy but is actually, you know, what's going on, I think is, is probably debatable. Well, you know, I mean, people who are looking for the, you know, a scientific description of human intelligence or human consciousness almost always resort to the emergent um, description. It's a whole lot of individual processing units, tiny little processing units called neurons, which do a very limited number of things, but add them up together and very complicated uh, capabilities emerge. Um, so, gee whiz, it seems legit to me to say that uh, wh whether you use a fancy term like superorganism, that's that's another issue. But uh, that certainly out of the collectivity of a of a bee colony or an ant colony, um, complex behaviors arise. Oh, and absolutely, there are behaviors in the colony that don't you know occur on the basis of an individual. You know, no, 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 I, I'm I'm not denying that. The the difference, of course, is that within our brains all of our cells share the same genetic information but uh, of course and they're all from you know an individual then to say okay we do have different individuals within a social insect colony yes they're related to each other but they're still not the same individual and there's still at some level a lot of competition among individuals within a social insect colony so the analogy does break down there so so they really aren't it's not like what's good for one of them is good for all the rest of them, necessarily. Yeah, although, you know, a, a lot of psychologists will tell you that the brain is not a unitary, or the mind is not a unitary thing either. It's full sure. of competing voices and uh, and impulses, all of which are sort of jockeying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I won't push that too hard because you're the expert. I'm just a, a radio interviewer. But <laughs> I want to talk about another thing, you know, that people might not attribute to insects, but but you discuss in your book, and that is personality. Um, you work with crickets, as we said, and other scientists, uh, naturalists who I've spoken to who spent a lot of time with the species, tell me that, yeah, you know, you just start to see differences among individuals that, you know, might best be described by that word personality. Well, when we talk about personalities in animals, and this has become a subject of study um, by a lot of people recently, this, this idea that you can have individual differences that are persistent, um, what we really mean is that an individual that's um, 
say, bold in some circumstances um, will also be bold or aggressive in other circumstances. So, for example, uh, if you're an insect that will emerge from a shelter really quickly after you've been disturbed, um, are you also the same kind of individual that will be aggressive in mating and more likely to beat up potential competitors? And it's turning out that at least in some cases, yeah, you do get these kind of you know, what are called behavioral syndromes because, of course, you know, a lot of people don't want to call them personalities because they really aren't exactly <laughs> like what you have in, in people and, and because scientists always want to have new terms. Um, so, sure, you can see that in lots of vertebrates, certainly, where there will be these syndromes. And increasingly, we're starting to find that they occur in invertebrates as well. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's interesting because, say, that being aggressive in mating is advantageous, but... Really, emerging from a shelter too soon after you've been, you know, after there's been a disturbance and there might be a predator around, that might be kind of foolhardy, and yet the two things are linked, so you end up with selection for both behaviors, even though one of them's really advantageous and the other one actually isn't. And that's, that's why it's of interest, I think, to scientists, is, you know, what happens when you end up with these suites of, you know, bold individuals or, for lack of a better word, shy individuals, um, what happens with that in evolution? Um, well, at the risk of sounding unscientific, uh, I'd still love to hear a story from you about just, you know, a kind of, I don't know, intuitive idea that this cricket is different from the other cricket. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do. I think crickets do have a lot of, you know, personality in the sense that I do love watching them, and, and it's really fun seeing what they do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I, I really d have never, like, I don't give them names. Um, I don't, you know, have, like, little pet crickets where I, you know, watch the drama of their lives from day to day and so forth. I mean, I, I think their, their lives are certainly filled with, you know, drama and, you know, there's lots of aspiration and heartbreak, but um, it's not, uh, you know, no, I, I, I'm afraid I, I don't have a little anecdote about Freddie the Cricket who, you know, tried to do this. And, oh, you know, Mar Marlene, that wasn't where I was going. I just thought... <laughs> I just thought maybe witnessing uh, what seemed to be built-in differences in, in in temperament or proclivity, you know, between two different crickets and saying, well, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing for which we use the word personality when we talk about people. Yeah, you know? well, yeah, yeah. It, you know, this, this discussion of personality, and I think um, what I sense in you, a reluctance to use that term, uh, applying it to insects, does raise this constant issue, I think, this tension in some biological sciences about how far you go in using, you know, sort of habitual, familiar human terms when describing animals, uh, you know, and does the word personality really have a justified meaning in the case of a human being and not in the case of, say, an ape or a dog or, dare I say, a cricket? Yeah, good question. Um, and, you know, there's this fine line between making up silly jargon just because you don't want to call a spade a spade, and yet using words carefully so that you don't end up assuming something that you can't assume. Um, and, you know, a good illustration of this is a discussion that actually was ongoing in a, an online forum that I look at um, from time to time uh, now about using um, a word like slavery or slave-making for ants. So there are ants in which one species will um, go out in raiding parties, find another species ant nest, take the young from that um, other species ant nest, bring them back to their nest, then the young uh, grow up inside the host species and um, do all the work of the colony and um, take care of the 
the, the uh, foreign species. So obviously, it's not in their evolutionary best interest to do that because they're not perpetuating their own reproduction. And this has been called, since before Darwin, um, slave-making in ants. And yet, um, a lot of researchers, uh, probably most notably Joan Herbers uh, at Ohio State, points out that this is really, you know, is this really what we want to evoke? And every time she talks about it in a public forum, she gets questions about, well, but so how similar is this to slavery and humans? And you really, when you're backed into a corner, you have to say, well, not very. Uh, you know, it is in the sense that there's individuals of one type that are working for individuals of another type and not benefiting from it. But a lot of the other really very evocative and, um, you know, sociopolitically important aspects of slavery and humans don't really apply. So is it closer to just plain old capitalism? <laughs> well, you could, call, you could say that, you know, and then you could call, talk about, like, the proletariat ants, and the, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that would solve anything. Um, <laughs> well, if we go back and look at the study of insects or, or animal life in general, you know, more than, say, 80 or so years, we start to find that this whole ban on anthropomorphism didn't exist. I mean, Darwin himself wrote, you know, using semi-human terminology about the feelings of animals, and certainly in the study of insects, you had lots of characters like, uh, was it um, uh, Jean-Henri Fabre? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who would write these little stories. I mean, they were very good observers. They, they, they definitely um, discovered a lot of interesting things about insect behavior, but then they'd write these little moral fables about them. You know, they'd talk about the, and I'm making this up, the vain butterfly or the industrious ant or the greedy dung beetle or something yeah, like yeah. that, right? Um, but science didn't really get hard-nosed about trying to purge its vocabulary of that stuff until fairly recently. Well, so I think we have the psychologists actually to thank for this, ra interestingly, rather than the biologists or the naturalists. So the move against anthropomorphism was really championed by a lot of people working in animal psychology, um, doing very laboratory-based research on pigeons and rats in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, there were a lot of researchers who said, look, you know, we've got to stop with this. Um, there's a very famous um, psychologist, um, hang on, I'm just going to find his initials because I can't remember whether it's J.B. It's Watson, and I can't remember whether it's J.B. or what his initials are. This sounds like the father of behaviorism, John Watson. Yes, yes. And so is it J.B.? I can't remember. I think it might have been. Okay. Uh, yes, J.B. Um, so uh, so J.B. Watson, who is kind of the father of behaviorism, had a lot of um, things to say about anthropomorphism and was very... Um, withering about using it in science, and he really didn't want people to do it. But even before him, um, E.L. Thorndike, who was another psychologist and wanted to uh, have people looking in the lab, looking under very controlled circumstances, railed in his writings. I, I, I assign this to my students because I think the paper is, is just hilarious, but um, it's uh, where he points out that you know everybody wants to talk about animal intelligence and no one wants to talk about animal stupidity. And he says... Um, uh, people only report such facts as show the animals at his best. Dogs get lost hundreds of times, and no one ever notices it or sends an account of it to a scientific magazine. But let one find his way from Brooklyn to Yonkers, and the fact immediately becomes a circulating anecdote. Thousands of cats on thousands of occasions sit helplessly yelling, and no one takes thought of it or writes to his friend, the professor. But let one cat claw at the knob of the door, supposedly as a signal to be let out, and straight away this cat becomes the representative of the cat mind in all the books. And I, you know, I think he's just dead on. It's, you know, it's more more than a, you know, well over a hundred years ago, and and I think it's just dead on that we tend to 
want to personify what animals do, and that makes us have very selective memories about their abilities. You know, uh, my personal favorite uh, in that style of essay uh, by far is Mark Twain's essay on the ant. Have you ever read that? No, oh. I, I, and I'm sure I should. Oh, you have to. Uh, he takes on the idea that ants are industrious and, you know, <laughs> admirable creatures and says they're, they're idiotic and uh, they waste huge amounts of time. He once watched an ant, you know, carry this large object from point A to point B by way of climbing all the way to the top of a grass blade and then oh, down right, again yeah. and again. And he said, this would be exactly as smart as my carrying a sack of flour from, I think, you know, Vienna to uh, to Berlin by way of Mannheim steeple or something right, like that. Right, right. Yeah, no, and ab- absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I must, I must look at that. But my big question is, did he, did he call all the, did he call all the uh, social insects uh, he, which is my other pet peeve? Uh, yes, they are all males, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they all do that. They all do that. Like and, I said, that's, that's my other pet peeve. And, yeah, and in fact, uh, nearly all of the, uh, the bees and uh, ants we see are female, right? Pretty much everyone. Um, I, I always have to, to make a big point of this when I teach students, and of course, you know, it's not helped by all the the movies about uh, insects always have to feature male characters, even if it's completely biologically wrong. And and I, I really, you know, I do, and, and I'm, I must hasten to point out that I'm not one of these people that just has no sense of poetic license about this or no sense of humor about it. And I, I have a friend who um, worked for uh, as a consultant for the movie Finding Nemo and was. Um, Concerned because the sharks that they portrayed in there didn't uh, the male sharks didn't have any claspers that males use in mating, um, and they were they were depicted without claspers. Um, and then at one point, someone else on the movie said, you know, like really get a hold of yourself. We're talking about a movie in which they were talking fish. Um, you know, like don't don't get so hung up on the the tiny anatomical details. So no, I get that, but I really feel like misrepresenting the sex of social insects is part of a bigger problem we have, which is to think that all the active organisms out there are male and that, you know, we don't have societies that have females, female-only, um, you know, queens and, and workers and so on and so forth. And I, I think we really miss a lot by assuming that everything is like a human. Ah, uh, but you got the ladybug. Come on. Isn't that enough? No, <laughs> it's not. It's not. I, I, I have a great slide of the, the movie Ant uh, has a poster that shows the um, main character sort of standing with, with limbs outstretched, and the, the thing is, you know, every ant has his day. Uh, and I have a great slide of a, actually an army ant worker, which of course is a female, standing in virtually that exact same position, and, and I always point out that it's her day, really. It's, it, it is her day. It's not his day. It's, it's her day. Worker bees are females. Uh, the, All the, the ants you see going to your sugar bowl are females. Even those in, intrepid army ants, uh, you know, that march through the jungle eating everything in their path, those yep. are girls. Right, big vicious, <laughs> big vicious jaws, you know, the whole thing, fire ants, army ants, all those things. Oh, they're God. all female. <laughs> I, people have a hard time with this. My students are just, they're just flabbergasted. They, they always, like, they have to come up after class and, and you know, like, so, so, so Dr. Zook, you know about the army ants? And it's like, yes, I know about the army ants. And they say, so, you know, about the ones that are the soldiers? I said, yes, I know about the ones that are the soldiers. So the ones with the big jaws, yeah. So those are female, yeah. Really, the the ones that are the soldier, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's it's like they just have to have a lot of checking up on that. <laughs> well, you know, this this the way in which we humans relate to uh, other creatures. Um, you know, we can't help but do this kind of thing. It seems to me, and and scientists, uh, if you look at the history we were just discussing, seem caught in this. Um, 
owe this sort of back and forth as well. I mean, you had the, the, the early natural history guys who were all writing these morality tales and these sort of Aesop's fables. And then you had the backlash you just described where Watson and others said, no, you can't do that. But then he went way too far. He described you know, animals as these very simple machines, and science for a long time missed a lot of what was going on, and only now are we beginning to, to discover you know, communication abilities, things like intelligence, even feelings among animals that we sort of, that we, I say we, but, but scientists sort of ruled out of the picture for a long time. Absolutely, and I think that's the biggest advertisement for why promoting animals as little copies of humans is not a good idea, that, that why anthropomorphism is not good, because you miss stuff. If you just assume that they're like you, then does that mean that you assume they're all like each other? Of course they're not. But if you so, assume you they're know, if you, you assume you, they're utterly unlike us and have nothing in common and you rule out any comparison, you miss stuff too, right? Oh, but I don't think anybody would argue that you you say they're utter, you, you the assumption is not either okay, they're just like little people in fur or they're absolutely like little machines. The assumption is so what are they like? You know, I mean the, the assumption is is to try to make as few assumptions as possible and to say, well, okay, how are they all different? How are they um, their own, their own creature. So, in your career, um, you know, having spent your, you know, most of your life thinking about and observing insects, I wonder: is it a constant effort for you to sort of hone your vision then, uh, how to look at these creatures in the most accurate possible way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the cool things about being a scientist is that you never just say, "Oh, okay, we figured that out, um, and now we're done." When I think about the history of entomology, the study of insects, and some of the things that you and fellow scientists have discovered, I, I'm totally in awe of your powers of observation. A lot of people just looking at an ant colony or a bee colony, you know, would just see chaos um, or maybe some very simple patterns that we'd get wrong. Uh, in the meantime, though, people like yourself, I mean, see all kinds of intricate things going on. Um, I'm, I'm still amazed that the, the bee waggle dance was ever even discovered. And you should probably describe what I mean by that. Well, sure. That, so, you know, a question that I maybe only a scientist would ask, or maybe most people would ask, is how do bees know where to go to get nectar? And it's a big problem because you're spending all your time in a dark hive, and then if you start to leave the hive, you don't just want to fly around at random and have each individual bee fly around at random until they find an individual um, uh, nectar source. So how are they going to communicate if they do find a good nectar source, which one bee, of course, can't monopolize? And uh, although they do communicate just by smelling the odor that's on workers that come back to the hive, it looks at least like they also communicate by doing these stereotyped movements that indicate where the nectar is, and they do this to their nest mates. Yeah, I, I actually, I don't work on honeybees, and I've actually had exactly the same thought that you just said, that it's amazing that anybody ever noticed this, but it's, as with anything else, once you start looking at something, you start noticing all kinds of cool things that they do. It was uh, Carl von Fritsch back in sort of mid-20th century who, who first really made sense of this? Well, he's the one who certainly documented it in uh, the best way. I think there had, there had been other scientists who had at least noticed some aspects of it before as well. But, yeah, he's certainly the one who's, who's attributed with a, a lot of the story. It ended up being somewhat controversial in that the initial experiments, I think, again, because it, there was this sense of, like, ooh, cool, bees have a language. Um, you know, bees are talking. Uh, that 
a lot of the initial experiments, I think, were not done as um, well as they could have been, and there are clearly other cues that the bees are using in addition to using just the cues from the dance. They use, they use odor and um, uh, some other stuff as well, but he amazingly found out that, you know, you can look at the movements that a bee makes and you can say, oh, okay, I know where the nectar source is just by looking at what the bee does in and, the hive. And the bee who has, you know, been out there, has seen a great patch of flowers and come back to the hive, then does this little um, uh, figure eight, you know, sort of dance in which it communicates by the nature of its movements the direction of those flowers in relation to the hive uh, and in relation to the, where the sun is, right? Right, right. And, so and the you distance. You have to have some way of orienting. You know, how do you, how do you describe where something is? Well, okay, what are the salient features? Um, you could use landmarks, but then that would be difficult because, you know, those might move in any way. I don't know how you'd explain, you know, tree in, in B. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, so, they, so their, their movements have to do with the angle to the sun. Um, and then they also communicate again through their movements the distance also right 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 uh, that's that just, that's awesome I well think. and what's awesome is that you know like we can do this too and and so we can <laughs> you know like we can look at the we can look at what the bee does and interpret it and say oh yes I know where the nectar is which is pretty amazing um, what are your favorite feats of observation then in in insectology. Um, or maybe you could tell me about some of your own observations, you know, things that you just picked out of what most people would say was, you know, just a chaos of bugs. Oh, so I think that um, finding, the, finding out that there were these parasitic flies in Hawaii was pretty cool. That was, that was a lot of fun um, because although the system where there were parasitic flies that um, homed in on the songs of crickets was known from other places, it had never been discovered in this set of species, or, or certainly in Hawaii before, um, and we found it just standing around, you know, looking at crickets, and I was noticing some behaviors that seemed a little anomalous, and I thought, huh, the only other situation where I know that this happens is when you get acoustically orienting parasitoid flies, and then the next day this great big maggot comes out of one of the crickets I was dissecting, and so, oh my God, is that one of them? And then, you know, you start going on from there. So that was pretty exciting. That was really fun. It must have been. Um, you study other species as well, and insects is one of your, your specialties? Yeah, I mostly have been studying insects for the past many years, but I've worked on birds. I spent a long time um, studying uh, red jungle fowl, which are the ancestors of domestic chickens, and I'm trying to get funding right now to uh, do a project on same-sex behavior in albatross, but that's kind of a, a whole other area of my interest. Same-sex behavior? Yeah, so the idea of, of there being... Um, same-sex behavior in animals is something that's interested people for a long time, and it's one of the big questions I always get. So when you tell people you study sex in animals, um, probably the, the, the three biggest questions I get are, um, so first of all, people always want to know, oh, you study, you know, sort of the biology of sex and how, you know, it evolves. So is it really true that, that men are just, you know, biologically destined to want to, you know, mate with lots of, you know, women, and so they're going to cheat on their mates, and whereas, you know, women always want to be monogamous. Um, and then they want to know about what about homosexuality in animals, and are there gay animals, and um, so forth. Uh, the third one, oddly, um, they want to know if animals uh, have oral sex. And I've actually never figured out why they, I, you know, honestly, the, the first time I was like, what are you talking about? And, but the second time I was like, really, again? And by the third time I was like, oh, right, yeah, you want to know about oral sex and animals. Um, I, I, so I, I, I actually have no, um, 
I don't really understand why they want to know about oral sex in animals, but I've, I've just gotten the question a lot. I, I have no explanation for what it is that people are interested in. But people hear you study crickets and they ask about oral sex? Well, it's more that they hear I study sex in animals. Oh, they're um, thinking more so, like that. So uh, that happened because my first book was, was <laughs> called Sexual Selections, What We Can and Can't Learn About Sex from Animals. And um, so I got a lot of... Uh, odd um, questions, uh, you know, people would email me with questions about fairly oddly explicit stuff. Of course, the next book that I wrote was about the parasites, and I talked a lot about human disease, and so then I got people emailing me with stuff about their bowel problems, which was kind of worse than the questions about the explicit sex stuff. Um, so I don't know what I'm, so far with the, with the insect book, I'm getting questions um, about cool stuff people saw insects do, so it's been a lot better, really, um, in terms of the, the male. Well, you, I mean, as a byproduct of all your research, you've learned a lot about human beings. You have. I, mean, <laughs> I, I have, indeed. Do you ever find yourself uh, in your off hours, though, just uh, by force of habit, you know, using your sort of insect-observing skills on humans? <laughs> uh, no, I, I have to say I, I don't think I have, uh, perhaps mercifully. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Uh, maybe it's because I don't, you know, so I don't study social insects. I study crickets, which are pretty... Um, you know, different from the way human social interactions happen. Uh -huh. So they only interact with each other um, when they're reproducing. You know, females don't take care of the offspring. They just lay the eggs and leave and so forth. So uh, mercifully, there are not a lot of opportunities for parallel observations. Um, getting back to anthropomorphism for a minute longer, do you um, think it's really possible, though, to purge your language and your... Uh, and the concepts you apply, completely a, a, a sort of a human outlook? I mean, wouldn't there be nothing left if you did that? I think it's not so much that I don't know whether there'd be nothing left or not, but, but no, of course it's not possible. I mean, everybody does science with their own set of social and cultural biases and things that they grew up with. And one of my other big interests is how that influences the way we interpret animal behavior. And, what, and so, you know, the, the point is not, okay, we're going to try and rid ourselves of biases, because I think that's, you know, a losing battle. It's more recognizing when they happen and making sure that enough people with enough different kinds of points of view study animals so that we get a, a fuller picture of it. So, so, no, I don't think we're ever going to, you know, eliminate our, you know, culture, the way we grew up and the way we interpret things. But what we can hope to do is be aware of the fact that we're interpreting things with those, you know, cultural glasses on and hope that we can get lots of other people with lots of other points of view to do the same thing. You know, I was thinking even uh, maybe on a somewhat more abstract level that if you get away from terms, uh, you know, like slavery and instead maybe use a word like recruit or conscript, you're still using a human concept, and what what else is there? Yeah, no, I I understand. I mean, I, it's it's hard, and I don't think, and you can try to come up, you know, painstakingly with a completely new vocabulary, but I'm not sure that's a solution either. So you know, I, it's we are we, we are inevitably going to view this through you know human colored glasses, and that's that's just the way of it. I I don't think I mean I don't spend a lot of time fretting about that, but. Science is at least attempts to be self-correcting that way so that if I do something and someone else says, but wait a minute, you know, there's a whole other way you could interpret that result, they're not going to be shy about telling me. Now, now, I was thinking that one way of looking at what goes on in the animal world that seems perhaps the least infected by uh, human bias is, is mathematical. And, in, and you describe some instances where 
evolutionary scientists, um, some of them in debt to your uh, graduate uh, advisor, um, W.D. Hamilton, very famous evolutionary biologist, uh, have applied really rigorous mathematics to evolutionary processes to the point where a thing that uh, biologists used to suffer from, physics envy, has, has been somewhat alleviated? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the cool things about insects is because you can do a lot of experiments with them, you can actually test fairly precise theories that make quantitative predictions. And we've been able to do that with, say, predictions about sex ratio, where you say, okay, how many males to females should there be in a population? How many male to female eggs should a female lay if she's going to um, have the maximum number of her genes represented in future generations? And you can make astonishingly specific predictions that have been upheld, which is really cool. Uh, there's one example you give in your book that maybe you can briefly describe for us. This is the, the case of a uh, parasitic wasp, I think, who, who lays her eggs uh, in a caterpillar. Yeah, so ratio is something a lot of us don't think about um, because we just assume, that, again, everything is like hu humans. We assume that there must be r roughly equal numbers of males and females and that that you know, works out the best because that's how you know, we're going to reproduce the best. But it turns out that there's variations from this in lots of animals, including insects, and there are lots of kinds of insects that are parasitic, as you said, and so female wasps, in this case, will lay eggs... Um, in a caterpillar, uh, they'll even do this in tobacco hornworms, by the way, which are everybody's nemesis in their gardens. So, so if it makes you feel any better, some tobacco hornworms at least lead it, uh, you know, have a grisly end um, where the wasp uh, lays eggs and then the eggs grow up inside the caterpillar, um, you know, eating the caterpillar's, um, uh, eating the caterpillar's flesh while it's still alive and then eventually they become adult wasps um, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but the point is that her offspring will mate inside um, the host. And inside the host, of course, it's kind of a closed social environment, as it were. There's just kind of you and your siblings. From the standpoint of increasing your reproduction as much as possible, what would it be better to do? Make an equal number of males and females or make mostly females and just a couple of males that could then inseminate all the females, all those females could then lay eggs of their own, and you'd have a bigger uh, reproductive output. A couple and of guys in a harem, basically. Exactly. And so it turns out that what they do is the latter, and you end up with a highly skewed sex ratio that's very, very um, female-biased in the offspring of these parasitic wasps. And you can predict, depending on how much kind of caterpillar meat is available, um, and whether or not somebody else has gotten there first and also laid her eggs inside the same host, you can predict exactly what the sex ratio ought to be and be remarkably correct. So people who think evolutionary biology is just a bunch of storytelling, uh, they can take a hike, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can test our hypotheses with the best of them. Um, you said a moment ago that you're, you've been looking at same-sex sexual behavior in albatrosses, right? Yeah, which turns out, again, to be one of those ways that a seemingly esoteric study system can might be able to tell us some really general things. Albatross nest in colonies like a lot of seabirds. For a long time, everybody assumed that not only um, were all the pairs male-female, because that's kind of an obvious thing to conclude, but that um, there wasn't any extra pair mating. Well, it turns out that at least in one colony on Oahu, a little over 30% of the pairs in this colony are not a male and a female, but two females. 
and the two females mate with another male in the colony who's already mated, and that's news in and of itself because we didn't realize that there was such a high proportion of extra pair mating. And then one or both of them will lay an egg in a nest. The two females will pair bond. They act just like a male-female pair. And then one of the eggs gets kind of shunted aside. We don't know how. We think it's at random. And then... When the chick hatches, the two females cooperate to raise it, and they have just as high hatching success, or sorry, just as high fledging success as um, male-female pairs do. So two mommies. Yep. And the question is, well, people have often talked about same-sex behavior in animals as being pathological or an artifact of captivity, but this is a natural population. It's true that it's female-biased, but... That's, which occurs for unrelated reasons having to do with this, but um, so there are more. There's a surplus of females in the population, and what I think might be going on is that this is a perfectly natural, if you will let me use the word, way to deal with a situation that arises probably quite a lot of the time. So, okay, you have a, a, a bias sex ratio, and some of the time pairing with another female, and admittedly, both females don't end up getting to raise a chick, but you have a 50-50 chance, and so it's better than nothing. Uh, and yet you would be loath to, to generalize that to human beings, right? I mean, we're not going to break the rules here, are we? Well, the idea here is that you see all kinds of variation in mating behavior in animals, and you see a lot of variation in mating behavior in humans. And so people who, are, who, who go on and on about how homosexual pairing in humans is unnatural and you'd never see it anywhere else are just wrong. Well, thanks a lot, Marlene. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, this is great. I, I, I really appreciate it. Marlene Zook is a professor of biology at UC Riverside. Her latest book is Sex on Six Legs, Lessons on Life, Love, and Language from the Insect World. And uh, earlier in the interview, you may have heard me say that I'd add a correction if that number I threw out about there being 100 billion neurons in the human brain was wrong. Well, no correction needed because that is the standard estimate. Meanwhile, it's also estimated that honeybees have nearly a million neurons in their brain, or equivalent of a brain, which is 100,000 times less than humans, but still a lot, if you ask me. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. The last night was warm and more. In a dream I thought I heard your voice well, I went outside and started to sing The crickets were doing the very same thing well, Me and the crickets sing all night long well, Me and the crickets sing the same damn song A song Song of how you should be with me. 